two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Skydra Pajunis, Curtis McCord, and John Sprague. Skydra is a public servant with the Ontario government. Curtis is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto Faculty of Information, and John is a software engineer from Manifold iSoftware. And all three are members of the Civic Tech Toronto leadership team. And today we will discuss the state of civic technology in Toronto. We will be exploring topics like funding and sustainability of projects, the integration of projects with not-for-profits and government, how civic technology will have to adapt to COVID-19. And one of my personal favorites, how can we make civic tech sexy and bring more attention to the community? Skydra, Curtis, John, Hello, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Good to be here. All right, so let's begin by setting the environment. Curtis, tell me, how do you like to describe Civic Tech, and what is Civic Tech Toronto? So when we refer to Civic Tech or Civic Technology, we can refer to it uh, in a lot of different ways or from a lot of different perspectives. It's sort of easy to consider it as a kind of social phenomena, a social movement, a social world where people use similar languages to justify um, shared kinds of ways of working, shared matters of concern. And basically this means using modern technologies, networking, communication technologies, web development tools, and uh, media artifacts, uh, be they consultations or open data sets. Um, or APIs or databases or things like that to address matters of shared concern. This might be uh, issues that come up in terms of government services. It might be issues that where the government is conspicuously absent, or it might just be issues that are kind of um, not yet in the mainstream consciousness, uh, where those publics are just kind of beginning. Civic Tech Toronto is a specific kind of community that's emerged to facilitate this work. And I like to think about it in terms of commons. It's not necessarily uh, something that has a definitive organizational structure. It's not really something that has, uh, you introduce us as leaders, for example, but nobody really necessarily considers themselves leaders in the Civic, in Civic Tech Toronto. Uh, we're just organizers who are volunteering to fill a role and responsibility until uh, as for as long as we can. The Civic Tech Toronto uh, community is, creates a resource, uh, resources of time and space and expertise where people can kind of contribute to the work of other people, to build ideas, to build out projects, uh, to learn new things, to uh, you know, uh, appreciate new speakers, uh, et cetera. And uh, by coming out to the, to the Hack Nights, they draw from and contribute to the community. So when we talk about Civic Tech Toronto, really we mean a community that creates something of value for all of its members. And its purpose is really to continue to be able to support that time and that place for civic technology as a way of working together. Yeah, I think that's great, Curtis. And I'll just sort of add that 
we, I, I really, and we talk about this a lot in the community and in our meetups um, weekly that it's, you know, it's a container space. It's a location that people meet and it's really up to the community to kind of keep it going. Civic Tech Toronto is 100% volunteer led. So it, there is a lot of change and the decision-making of, of, you know, when things get hosted or who's coming and chairing certain meetings is decentralized. So it, and, and just going back to how we uh, frame ourselves, we're, we're co-organizers, we're, you know, we're co-decision makers and really everything does get distributed from, from the timing we choose from the speakers we set on to the formats of our, of our meetings. John, would you like to add anything? Only this. In our land acknowledgement, which we read at every meeting like most civil society institutions in Canada, one of the things we say is that we are here under the Dish With One Spoon, Toronto Treaty, and Treaty 13. And civic tech is, in part, an attempt to live into the spirit of friendship, the spirit of sharing, the spirit of coexistence that is exemplified or implied by all of these three agreements. And I've had the chance to go to a few of your events, especially in the past, not so much recently. And what I particularly like about Civic Tech Toronto is how welcoming you are to new faces. You have one-on-one set up and you're really good at sort of almost creating a kind of staging for people that might be intimidated by the the closeness and the community you've created and they're coming into sort of like the lines then, but you say, no, no, we're going to make you feel welcome. There's, here's sort of like a, an entry into this world that we're in. And, and I think a lot of community groups tend to forget that. Yeah. And by that, I mean, tend to forget the importance <laughs> of welcoming yeah. faces because it can be very intimidating. So I don't know if you, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I, I painted myself in my own corner on this one, which is a great way to continue this conversation, I suppose. Oh, I can, I'd, I, I wouldn't mind jumping in there. So figuring out ways that we can be welcoming and inclusive uh, as a community, that's like essential to the work that Civic Tech Toronto does. Because if new people aren't coming in, if we aren't able to get a diversity of perspective, of, of skill, of opinion, of idea, then the community isn't able to thrive in the way that it needs to. It needs that kind of dynamic, unplanned or um, kind of confusing atmosphere in order for things to kind of begin to become clear for people to discover what it is that they're interested in um, and to be able to kind of like make a commitment, make commitments to each other and to, to specific kinds of work. Um, so, for Civic Tech Toronto, because we're all volunteer run, we're always, we always need are welcoming new people because that's the only way that the organization or the commons can continue to exist. To grow, absolutely. Otherwise, it'll just wither and die. And we definitely don't want that. We definitely do not want that to happen, which leads perfectly into the first question I want to explore, which is how can we bring more attention to the Civic Tech movement in general? particularly in Toronto. The term I always use is that it's not sexy. It's, it's hard to get people's attention. You guys do these, these events and these meetups in the evenings, which is in direct competition with Jeopardy, with primetime television. You're competing for time, particularly free time from people. What can be done, at least as, as I was saying, in Toronto, 
to make this more sexy? Well, one of the aspects of civic tech is that it is every Tuesday, right? So if you're busy on one Tuesday, you might not be busy the next. And we're always happening. We're always running a hack night on a Tuesday. Uh, so that stability, I think, you know, we're always there whether you're watching Tuesday Night Jeopardy or not. Yeah, there's, there's a consistency. There's a reliability of the community. You know, it's always there for you when, when you need us or, or when you don't. But I, I think for me too, I, I think of this, you know, from a communications perspective and it's like, I, I am newer to this community, but I'm amazed at the stories, at the level of work that's happening. And so I think awareness is, is one key ingredient to sort of making this more sexy, more interesting, and just more aware to Torontonians that there are people who, you know, really care about the intersection of law and design, and they're working on projects to make that better. Um, you know, there's people who are, there's a, a project called Women in Color, and it's about providing resources for women and people of color to have guidance and support and speaking engagements and public engagements. And, you know, I think these stories sell themselves. They're just, there's a, there's a lack of awareness of them. So I think, I mean, what you're doing, Richard, is amazing. I, I, I personally would love to see Civic Tech Toronto community members talk more in the open about the work that they're doing. I think that's a really key ingredient that I've noticed is, is missing a little bit from this community. And um, yeah, I'm just trying my best to sort of like encourage people to do that because I think it's, it's really, really remarkable once people take stock of an understanding of, of what's happening. I wanted to add that what, that what we do potentially affects people's freedom and quality of life. In a very, very specific set of ways, we are engaged in working with technologies that in the future are either going to be terribly tyrannical or terribly liberating. And everybody has the opportunity, and I would say that at least some of us have the obligation to address these issues. We've, I regularly read a variety of blogs, and I've read occasionally people hyperventilating about the possibility that something like the Chinese social credit system may come here and we'll lose all our freedom. Well, we've got a project on data governance going within the context of Civic Tech Toronto that we're working on exactly that issue. How do we prevent people's data from being used against them? How do we set up the principle that your data belongs to you, not the person who collects it from you? And Nobody works on this, then by default, what we will drift into is something is a series of decisions which may be well made or well, maybe not well made. And I think will probably not be well made, but will be made by people who are not the public. And, and I think, and I want to go back a little bit because one of the things we, we all need, the, th the four of us, to realize is we belong to a bubble, we, a very small bubble. We <laughs> represent a very small percentage what? of the population. <laughs> Imagine that, right? Um, and you, you guys threw around some terms that, that I'd like to essentially almost put back into your court, which is Skydra. You mentioned that you know, this is a group that's for people that are interested in law and design. John, you mentioned it's for people who are interested in freedom and quality of life. And I would wager that most people are, are not interested in those things. If people really truly understood some of the issues around data governance, people would not have Google Home or Alexa's at home, or they would be deleting their Facebook profiles, or they would be, 
you know, much more involved in the issues that are taking place. We would not be in this situation where we're trying to recruit bodies. I guess what I'm trying to get at fundamentally with this question of how can we make it more sexy is it's not just civic tech in general, but perhaps the issues that we're, being, that we're facing right now, like the social credit thing. I personally, personally, I am a huge fan of Black Mirror. And Black Mirror mm-hmm. has done an amazing job of bringing, bringing attention to these issues. Mm-hmm. But has it done enough? Do we need to do more? You're saying like, for example, wouldn't it be great if like George Strombolopoulos or CP24 came to one of your meetings, but they never would do that because it wouldn't reach a large enough audience or it would not be interesting for their audience. How can we make civic tech in Toronto in particular more sexy? To, to maybe do, you said the stories sell themselves, Skydra. Do they? I've been doing this for 10 years and it's, it's a hard sell for me. Maybe you've had more luck. One of the things that I will say about participating in the Civic Tech Toronto community and the idea of like doing this kind of activity and um, having these kinds of relationships with other people is that it's not generally how people work with each other or uh, meet each other or socialize with each other. It's, very, it's much more intentional than um, just meeting people at a party or going to uh, something for a specific reason. And it really prefigures a different kind of civilian or civic life that asks people to like enroll themselves or like just jump into things as if they, as if their opinions, they wanted to make them matter. And if they wanted to take a share of power, there are obviously a lot of institutional and organizational barriers to like, for that uh, kind of perceived sexiness to become real efficacy and real power. Um, but like just simply learning to operate in this way is, uh, I think, like something that people need to, need to experience. How, do we bring, how can we bring that experience to more people? Do you guys have any ideas on that? Well, hopefully a lot of people listen to your podcast. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping anyway. (laughs) I mean, I think sometimes too, you throw the word tech in front of something and you're like, oh, that's not for me. Like, I don't belong to this community. And I'm speaking from experience. Like, I didn't think this would be a community for me because I don't have a tech background. I'm, I have a communications background. You know, I thought of going to law school for the longest time. I'm, I'm a public servant and, you know, it, it, wasn't immediately clear to me that this was a community space that like I could be a part of and explore. And I think one thing that has become even more um, clear to me is that it's, it's not about the tech, it's about the civic aspect of civic tech. And, you know, that continues to evolve for me what that means, but it's really, again, creating a space for people to think out loud, to sort of test board their ideas in a non-judgmental space and it's hard to articulate that but once you get it like once you're there once you take a moment I think to really just understand why people are doing this I I think there's 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 a lot there but you're right like I don't think we've got the frame and I think there's like I guess a bit of translating that still needs to happen and I think maybe that's the challenge it's like we almost need people who understand what folks are trying to do but also can really articulate it in a way that's consumable to wider audiences. And I think that's sometimes the, the bigger challenge. John? What, what I think we're up against primarily is a bunch of cultural tropes. 
And I don't know how to overcome those. Uh, every every now and the, now and again, I, I, a publication such as the uh, Globe and Mail will publish something along the lines of, uh, you know, I I am I am an artist and therefore I must hate nerds. Basically, I you know like numbers are evil, computers are evil, machines are evil, and I'm just producing. I'm just uh, I'm just writing this on a computer and publishing it out on the web because I have to and I resent it. And I honestly think sometimes I, and, and that then feeds into a kind of resignation with technology is always going to be used for bad things and there's nothing we can do about it. And that in turn leads to a kind of quietism about, you know, we can't really do anything. Let's just hunker down and, and, and accept it. All of these things, I think, lead to essentially a very, a, a very bad set of conclusions. People assume they can't affect their world because they can't affect a huge part of it. Even, even before COVID-19, technology made up a huge chunk of our interactions. If you consider every single phone call, every single, the, the way we get our news, which is transitioned from being mostly paper-based to mostly electronic. And a lot of our work communications, how many people use paper mail for work or paper memos for work communications anymore? I would Su suggest it's less than one percent of the population at this point everybody even before COVID-19 was highly technological highly committed to technology but a huge number of people basically said I don't have to understand this as long as I as long as I can tell myself I resent it and I think I don't know how to break through that because it's difficult I understand it can be that there are all kinds of things going on there but I think in the end, we have to say, you may not be interested in technology, but you're using it. And if you use something that you can't understand, that you refuse to understand, then you have much, much less personal freedom than you really ought to have as a person living in a democracy. You, you, what you just said kind of reminded me of a, of a scene from The Matrix Reloaded where one of the old counselors is talking to Neo inside Zion and he points to him, you see that machine there? I have no idea how that machine works, but I know it's important that it does work. And then he says, you know, Neo, you're kind of the same way. I don't know how you do the things you do, but I know you're important. And I think when it comes to civic tech, it sort of falls in a little bit into that same category. And, and John, I want to ask you that question on how to break through. And I, I'm going to provide a suggestion here and I want you to, to deconstruct it and everybody else on this, on this call as well. Skydra, you mentioned that once you say the word tech, people's eyes sort of gloss over a little bit. Is this, let's look at it from the perspective that this is a brand issue. Do you change the brand by say changing the name or do you turn the brand sexy? Like say, for example, bringing in kittens and, and good looking people and models and George Clooney and Angelina Jolie like what is sort of, or maybe a, a third option, I don't know, but what would be the way to tackle it from a branding perspective? So like these people, when they hear the term civic tech, they don't tune out. My prescription is unfortunately not one that will not be popular. I believe that the only way to deal with the situation is, is for people to face their fears head on and basically tell people, look, if you're going to be a citizen of a democracy, you have one of two choices. You can find a way to reckon with technology, 
in some way, you can find a way to understand that it does affect you, that you have responsibilities to your children, to your fellow citizens, to everybody, not necessarily to understand it, not, not to become a computer programmer or get, get a, get an MSC in, in, in information technology, but to find a way to reckon with it to yourself, to say, what I use, I will, to the best of my ability, what I use, I will not resent. And what I use, I will attempt vaguely to understand and to face your fears at, about it and ultimately to come to come to some kind of terms with them. And there's no substitute for that. I mean, changing changing the name. I'm a disability rights activist from way, way back. I watched um, something like a long time ago, for example, the word retarded was a word that was actually neutral. It was supposed to be therapeutic. It was even supposed to be positive. It was supposed to suggest that people were maybe slow or held back a little bit, but they weren't actually, they, they were still people and they could still function. And we watched that become a, become a term of abuse. Changing the word doesn't, doesn't really get us anywhere. I think you, I think we have to ultimately address the substance of these issues and other people may have a completely different attitude about what the substance of the issues are. But ultimately, I would suggest that if you, if you insist on becoming somebody who resents technology, but uses it, who depends on a Joseph Weizenbaum used the word priesthood. And I think that's a good word for it. A priesthood, a technological priesthood to manage it for you. You are going to be less free than a citizen of a democracy has an obligation to be. And that's, that's a tough thing to say, but I'm saying. There are a few things more occult than the processes used to create integrated circuits, uh, the most high technology chips and computers that we make. Those are processes known only if anybody knows them individually. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, it, there is like a kind of mysticism behind technology. But one of the things I would say is that like in terms of the brand of civic tech, like the way that civic tech oper operates culturally and organizationally, it's like one actor in a larger kind of arena. Um, there are projects that are civic tech projects, sometimes explicitly that aren't associated, even in Toronto, that aren't associated with civic tech Toronto. There, there are projects that could be described easily as civic tech in Toronto that don't describe themselves as civic technology. Uh, they might be community organizing, to, you know, they might be artistic projects, uh, but you can, you can, you could talk about them as if they were civic tech, uh, but they're not part of the culture and the social world that makes up civic tech Toronto. No matter what you're doing in terms of political activity, like you're using technology and it's going to be essential to it. So this is one thing that civic tech as a, as a group kind of like is always trying to figure out. And it's very difficult um, is like, how can we be a productive interlocutor? How can we have productive relationships with people who aren't the civic technology, the civic tech Toronto community, um, but who we align with, who we want to help? Um, because the way of working is something that we want to promote as well. Yeah. And I mean, this discussion just makes me think back to like, you know, what does it even mean to affiliate yourself with a brand? And usually brands have a very specific audience in mind. And I think the audience for civic tech is broad. You know, I think we, we're trying to attract 
as many people who, who want to come out. I mean, the range of topics of discussion month after month, week after week, I mean, it, it really varies. And, you know, there's, there's like a common expression that we think about um, data officer of Ontario often says, you know, we, we need to design for the fringes to sort of make accessible services or make accessible government services. And sometimes I think of that in the civic tech context as well. Like we have to think about those who are not represented in mainstream decisions when it comes to tech or I don't know, like not to, not to shed a a lad light on any particular companies, but it's just like, there needs to be more spaces to sort of think through these big decisions. And as, as John was saying, like are going to impact everyone's life. Like these are, these are big things. So yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I just think the brand discussion is fascinating because I often think, wow, yeah, like who's our target audience at the end of the day? And in some ways, I think we're trying to capture everyone while not necessarily doing that all the time, but at least allowing ourselves to be a place where anyone can come and everyone is welcome. And, and, and you're so right, because any brand marketer or any marketer worth their skin will tell you that if your target market is everybody, then you've already lost. Yeah. <laughs> and the space that we're in, your earlier, Curtis, you were talking about that civic tech belongs to a much larger arena, which I would call civic engagement as a whole, right? Probably that's probably the, the large umbrella here. And within it is civic tech, open data, voting, all these things. And uh, if we're going to have a large, it's hard to take something like civic engagement and not have your target audience be everybody, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's almost like... Um, it's the golden question, really. I, yeah. I think it's going to be, I think it continues to be a really challenging question to answer, especially with our move on, with our movement to online, like socializing, online everything. It's just, it's so hard. It's, it becomes increasingly challenging. But yeah, I think that's a nice way of framing it, kind of being in the arena of civic. Okay, we need to move on. I, oh, I'm sorry. just going to answer uh, Curtis on a point of order. The underlying technology that we use for uh, fabricating microchips, Curtis, was actually worked out in the 1930s as a way of counterfeiting paper money. Well, then I'll strike my comment for the record and I'll ask you <laughs> what I can wiki. Photo, photo engraving. <laughs> That's basically what they do. Oh, photo engraving. Well, I agree on both your, uh, your perspectives. I, I lean more towards Curtis and that, to me, what Dell and Intel and AMD are doing fabricating those, those CPUs is definitely mysticism for me. Uh, but we need to move on. There's a lot more questions that we need to investigate here. And we're going to go to one that is particularly, particularly dear to, I would argue, your members, which is the sustainability and the funding of the projects. Because a lot of people come in with great ideas, great motivation, great insights. They get off to a great start. And then things peter off because there's no model there to sustain what they're trying to do. There's no support. This is something I've witnessed in Toronto because I'm Toronto-based, but I know it happens across Western countries. Talk about that a little bit. Talk about how frustrating it can be, some of the solutions you'd like to see, some some of the solutions you've seen in other jurisdictions that you'd like to bring to Toronto maybe. I kind of came prepared to address this one because I've actually had experience with it in a number of a number of uh, a number of circumstances where money money changed hands. 
Not necessarily to me, but it, in some cases it did. So I've been on two projects that were more or less sustainable, more or less funded. One was Bike Space, which was a bike parking application that was developed ultimately as a consortium between Cycle Toronto, uh, the Toronto City Government, and Civic Tech Toronto. And that was brought to us very specifically through Code for Canada in, uh, I'm pretty sure it was uh, 2016, the summer of, no, the summer of 2017, sorry, in the summer of 2017. And, um, the other one was Vision Zero, which was a essentially a competition that was set up. I was on the winning team. I got a modest but enabling stipend and uh, worked for a while on uh, on on statistical modeling to uh, on statistical modeling of traffic to see if we could predict where uh, accidents were a light, likely probability. And I should have gotten farther than that than on that than I have, but I'm haven't given up yet. So essentially, Bike Space was funded by the uh, City of Toronto, and there was funding for one manager. I'll go into more detail about how that worked in terms of the uh, in terms of the integration of the projects. But we did get funding, and it was available for a fairly long time. We also got facilities through the through the City of Toronto. We were given access to their um, innovation center for meetings. And the project persisted and it came up with a workable, a working system, which was actually then spawned off to the city of Edmonton. So the deep commitment that, uh, that we have to open source and free software means that a great deal of what we do more or less gets put up on Git, GitHub, GitLab, one of the Gits, and it gets shared. It's open. It's available to everybody. Everybody uses it. Everybody who wants it can use it. And therefore, we develop, you know, we start with a code base, we develop more code bases, we develop more code bases than that. And eventually, you know, the, this, this, this work continues. It is, in a sense, uh, one of the things about open source is that the work you do is, in a sense, immortal because it'll never be, it, it won't be purged from Git. It'll be available and somebody who's, who wants to work on something else can see what you've done, learn from it. And take what they need. And that's, that, that means the, the actual work that we put into things gets sustained through essentially indefinitely. I agree a lot with what John said, although I will say our commitment to free and open source software, you know, could be, could be deepened in a lot of different ways. Uh, but that's maybe a topic for another time. And I also am somewhat worried that, you know, the, the, the common assets of Git are being closed upon uh, as, as time goes on. Um, but I will say that back to my earlier point about like when you kind of like produce within a commons, you produce alongside within other commons as well. And that's kind of how free and open source software works. Um, there's different ways to think about how projects can become sustainable. And one of them is to think about it in terms of business models, where you're trying to create an organization that has a metabolism that creates revenue and profit that can then make it sustainable. But there's also sustainability that you can think of in terms of stewardship, as it what you're creating is an artifact or an asset or technology that as long as people use and take care of, it continues to exist and to live on. And when you contribute something to a commons, where it exists, where it exists in a stable and protected space, it becomes an asset that people can draw on whenever they need it. 
Um, so you can make your project sustainable by creating a technology that can be used, as John said, by someone later on that can be forked or cloned or modified by someone else. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, on, on, the, on the idea of sort of like allowing our community to sort of be forked or ideas to be shared and um, drawn upon by other communities, I think, I mean, just more recently, like with COVID, we've, we've seen a really interesting shift in the community. At least I've really observed that, that now our meetings are available to um, any time zone. I mean, you can, you can more easily tune into a civic tech hack night from Ottawa. You know, if you, if you feel connected to this community or the speaker, or you want to collaborate or join a breakout room, you can do so, you know, at, at more leisure. And I think that in some ways that does, that would help the sustainability of some projects. It's just, we might not necessarily have the best handle on the status of projects these days. Like we're, you know, we're putting a lot of effort into uh, keeping the space going and, you know, documenting our transitions, like documenting different roles, you know, the role of convening this community looks different in virtual times. And we're really trying to make that openly accessible and share that as best as we can in our open, open, um, organizing open channels and our open, you know, Google drives for documentation. Um, but I think there's so much more as, as Curtis said, like there's so much more that we can go deeper in with sharing documentation of projects and having perhaps mechanisms for checking in with teams too. I just think that sometimes the challenge is like, well, like who would do that? And like, to what extent would you do that? It's uh, it's something we talk about all the time and, and we're working through, but it, open documentation and open stewardship, I think also is a key part of this conversation. And I want to ask you a question, Skydra, particularly because you bring a unique perspective to this, to this conversation. When John mentioned the two projects that did receive funding, it was mm -hmm. from the government. And it was a situation, at least the way it was described in this episode right now, that the government reached out to the civic tech community. They mm -hmm. had a program in place. They had, in, in, a, in one instance, it was a competition. What role should government procurement maybe play here? And I know it's, I'm, I'm feeling like a really like thick onion layer here uh, because we all know how much government procurement needs to change and can yeah. be a barrier to entry, especially if you are just a couple of people that are working on this on the side, but you don't have the resources that an IBM or even a smaller medium-sized enterprise would have access to. How can the government be more involved in something like civic technology, which is directly linked to what can be referred to as their mandate? That is such a good question. And <laughs> I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can answer it to the best of you know, my ability and where I sit, but I mean, I, I think it really just comes back to sort of how government funds things like at a very basic level. I think sometimes projects are funded to like 10 years, 15, 20 years out. And it's even technology projects when we don't even know what technology or the specifics, you know, that we might be able to be using or like different, I don't know, different upgrades or what have you. And how can you possibly user test 10 years from now? Like, that's just insane, right? Like when we talk about, you know, designing with users. Um, but so I, I, I think, yeah, maybe to kind of like reframe it, I think it's just rethinking like, how we fund projects and thinking about 
incrementally funding things and testing with civic tech, like, you know, doing more experimentation with procurement, not being afraid to allocate more experimentation funds and, and realizing that in doing so, you could really, really save a lot of money, a lot of stress down the road. Failure would look different. I mean, that's something that I think also comes into this, this, this arena is this fear of failing. And if you're not experimenting, if you're not asking citizens what they want constantly and in turn updating them, I think civic tech has, um, the opportunity to be a community that allows certain jurisdictions to provide updates perhaps, or test out updates to communities, um, then I think it's a, a big missed opportunity. So I think government needs to to listen more to what civic tech communities are, are doing and convening. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm here. If I'm going to be blunt, like, you know, you're practicing I, what you preach. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, and I think it helps me be a better public servant being in tune with civic tech community helps me actually deliver services for the public. I mean, I'm not perfect, of course, but it, it raises questions that I hadn't considered before. Curtis, you had something to say, and then we'll go over to John. I definitely think that Skydra is getting to something that's like really important and a really kind of interesting way to think about the way that like technology and public life are built uh, because, you know, these systems that define government services that um, kind of create the relationships uh, between people and their governments, like they affect a lot of people. And I, it's an oversimplification, of course, to say that some of the issues that the public service has are based on organizational structure or des- development methodology, um, although I don't think it's entirely inaccurate. Um, but there are ways of doing participatory design where you're actively involving your, your, those that are affected by, by the technologies that you're designing. And they're viewed as very effective. We could maybe con- conceive of a, of a way of designing uh, public technology that kind of goes beyond mere user testing, where people are treated as experts in not only the technical skills uh, in where they are actually experts, um, but also experts about their situations and their everyday lives. And they're given a chance to participate along and act alongside public servants who, of course, bring their own amount of expertise and, you know, generally have a lot more time to commit to some of these things than uh, the average citizen since they're being paid for it. But like to explore ways of working that are more that make the kind of the, the government and the bureaucracy more porous and more open when we design technology and systems. Civic. Tech Toronto and other kind of uh, groups like the Civic Hall or Grit Toronto, like they start to kind of, they're starting to kind of make some of these, like you call them trading zones or boundary spaces, um, where government and civilians interact in a way that they typically do not. And that's why they're very interesting and I think very important to the way that we like make technology, public technology, and we do kind of policy and governance work uh, in the future. And I also just wanted to just backtrack and say that um, it's, a, it's definitely something that happens where civic tech projects grow out of civic tech and they become their own organizations, where they become not-for-profits, um, oftentimes like very inter- interesting ones. The, the organizations that get to that point coming out of Civic Tech Toronto, like they're very interesting. And I think in many ways they're they're like, they're, some of them are quite strong, like Women in Color and Law and Design Collab and um, 
and inspired by the very like structure of civic tech just to add to that too like the the way that they're even functioning i think is inspired by is forked from the ideas from the structure from the decision making from the folks that come out week week after week so that's another i think just continuous cycle of how civic tech indirectly sustains these communities because they because oftentimes too we'll ask them to come back and give us an update or you know share what their blockers are or you know what ideas they've got going and 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 sometimes it inspires like other breakouts or tackling questions or challenges that they hadn't even thought of so yeah and i think i want to explore that a little bit because the subject we're talking about right now is funding and sustainability and one of the things that i see quite a bit is starting to change starting is that a lot of these we'll call them third parties whether it's government whether it's even a private sector or not or a not-for-profit are oftentimes using a group like civic tech toronto or even open toronto the the the, the group that i organized as a i'm not going to say free labor but darn close to free labor right we want you to look at our work what do you think about it it's almost like a quasi you know what's the word i'm looking for like focus group sometimes mm-hmm. it's extractive and it's say that bit- again Ex- extractive yeah mm-hmm. and and that i don't know where i'm going i don't yeah. know if i have a question here but it's a thought that i've had and i'm sh- it sounds as though you guys have shared it, it does as well. happen not as often maybe it's not something that i think civic tech views necessarily as like an issue because sometimes when people come and they're like they are looking to extract expertise um and like civic tech is a resource for that like they can do it but it's not it doesn't necessarily always damage civic tech as a community right like we can absorb that and we are happy to help them i think it would be mm-hmm much more difficult for civic tech to get into something that was more um more formalized with a with a company or co- a corporation that could act more strategically on the civic tech community uh, i'm not really sure how that would work um but i think it'd be very it'd be very weird in my experience the friction is not with civic tech to members we come into this with our eyes wide open we know uh when when bike space happened the manager was paid the rest of us weren't and it was put very clearly to us are were we willing to accept that arrangement and the answer was yes and was yes because people valued very much deeply valued the experience and the ability to collaborate on a project that mattered a lot to us most of us are cy- i am a cyclist and mm-hmm. a pretty militant one and um <clears throat> well militant in the sense that I turn out for the memorial rides, but, um, <laughs> but collaborate on things that matter a lot to us. And it's also yeah, a yeah, source right. of major personal affirmation. I remember once I was in a situation where I was speaking with two people, two other software engineers that I did and do deeply respect. And one of them said, well, you know, if they locked the three of us in a room, they'd have their program in a week. And being included in that really meant a lot to me. And so, for us, it's great. Mm. For professionals on the outside, for people that have done this for years and years and years, and civil servants who are like looking at this as otherwise this work might be going to us, 
it's very different. And I've, I've, I've experienced that friction and pushback myself. People just not being happy that amateurs, quote unquote, were being brought in. Well, let's pivot a little bit here along those lines to this element of integration, which is our next subject, is a lot of these great projects might have some kind of funding or at least some base, some seed that exists, and how to integrate it with a government agency, a not-for-profit, an NGO, or just the the open source community at large. It's easy to drop something in GitHub. It's another thing for people to know about it. One of the ways I want to enter this conversation is something you said, Skydra, earlier about you being a public servant and how being a member of Civic Tech TO helps you do your job better. Many years ago, I was lucky enough to be part of a kind of a think tank type of session with the city of Guelph. And the group I was part of were tasked with something very difficult, which was how do you make open government and open data like a reality without costing it a single thing? Like, what could the city do? And after a lot of, you know, a day's worth of sort of brainstorming and refining, we came up with this idea as a group, which was on a job description, every single job description I've had in my life always had this line. Blah, 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 everything you're supposed to do, and, and any other duties as assigned. It's a statement that means everything and means nothing. And we came up, and I forget the word for word that we had, but it was something along the lines of, and any other duties as assigned, including open government and open data. So like this, every single public servant in the city of Guelph, under job description would be open government, open data, and the spirit of the exercise would be like, did learn about it. That would be like kind of like a, a trigger to go out and learn about it. When we're talking about the integration of these civic tech projects with the government, let's look at it from the perspective of the job description. I know that there are many departments across Canada and different jurisdictions that are particularly focused on digital services and, and things of that nature. But you might not see it in the Ministry of Transportation. You might not see it with agriculture. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good frame. And I mean, I, I think it's a lot, for me personally, I think one of the most important qualities of a public servant is curiosity. Like, I, I think you have to be curious. I think you have to continue to ask questions. You know, why are we doing this? Why, why have we decided to go down this path? Why was this decision made? And then, and, and, that's the only way you can sort of anticipate the future impacts of some of these decisions that are getting made. And so civic tech and like kind of integrating some of these, these projects is, I don't think we're going to fully know, you know, it's not ever going to be seamless. I don't think we'll ever come up with a formula. I don't think it'll ever be a one, two step process. And the skill sets that public servants or governments need, I think are, are more translation focused, are more relationship based focused, are more knowing to knowing what the right questions are to ask to make sure that like technology investment decisions that get made actually make sense, that we can actually procure them, that those contracts actually make sense. Um, you know, these are really, really tough, complex matters in many situations. And so not one person, not one team, not one specialized unit within the government can tackle it on their own. And so 
I think that's like a really key skill. That's a really key way of approaching these, these unfolding. Encouraging curiosity within the public service a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's where that sort of like that line and the, you know, other duties as assigned comes in. And I mean, I really feel that too. I think many people feel that, especially now during COVID. I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, other duties as assigned is like, an, it's just, yeah, like we have to step up. There's, there's no, there's no alternative. Um, and so that's the trend because technology and how it intersects with public life and how we govern it, how we procure it. I mean, we just don't have a clear cut answer right now, but we have to continue to ask. You got to find a way. Yeah, we have there's to. No, there is no other option. There is yeah. no other option. Yeah. Anybody else would like to sort of tackle this issue of integrating sort of these projects more formally in government or not-for-profits or in NGOs? Yeah, sure. I might make a... I mean, so the most straightforward way is when, like, civic tech designs with partners. Um, and that's a model yeah. where civic tech organizations, for example, Code for DC in America... I think it's especially um, especially prevalent in the Nova Scotia Civic Tech, St. John's and Fredericton, um, as well as I think I've heard some of it uh, about some of it in Alberta, um, where they're just they're 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 actively partnering with adjacent organizations to like get stuff done, and oftentimes they're not they're not generating uh, value for a for-profit company. They're helping food banks, you know with their logistics or they're helping um, people get access to legal resources and things like that. And I mean, there is an entire vein of what some people might, which you could call civic technology that doesn't address government, but it addresses uh, interest-based or mission-based organizations like not-for-profits. Um, because this is changing in government where technology is considered something that's a cross-cutting systemic um, practice that needs to be present in all different parts of a of a of an organization, but in a lot of not for profits, like the the capacity isn't something that they they have in house, and it's not something that they necessarily can afford off the shelf. So that's one way. Of course, greater integration with government could be a way of doing it as well. But I think Skyder has spoken effectively to that. Well, let me ask you a question, Curtis, on that because there's there's almost like a a dance that takes place and the onus unfortunately seems to be put on the government to reach out to civic technology or at least that seems to be the dynamic for any kind of sustainable funding for for a project a lot of the times or it's something that's done through a hackathon on the weekend or 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 something that's more sustained like civic tech toronto like the space you'll provide and you hope people turn up there's a there's a real kind of like political economic reasons for this right like people come out to civic tech on a tuesday night after they've worked their day jobs after they've done you know a full day's work and they're going to do more days work um they come out to give more of their time and labor um, because they think it has value to do so we don't necessarily live in a society where people can spend their time doing what they think is valuable they spend their time doing what assures their material subsistence uh, by getting usually wages. Um, so for this reason, civic tech is something that only happens for two hours a week and interacting with a group that tries to be casual and inclusive in that way, not requiring mm -hmm. people to take on a lot of responsibilities because we know this is a volunteer thing for people 
it means that like outside of um outside of the hack nights like things can be pretty ephemeral like it's not mm-hmm. necessarily the case that like you, you kind of have to come into the time and space that civic tech toronto makes for this kind of conversation to happen and is it enough no it's never enough but like you know this is another this is a covid covid thought but like you know what it'd be much different if people were working a 30-hour week um, and had more time to kind of devote to this uh and they would because they do no I, I would tend to agree and that was sort of goes back to the first question about we're competing with time against things like you know the the hockey playoffs or whatever soccer practices and I want to ask you as well, I want to stick with Curtis on this one, because I believe you were part of those conversations earlier on with Civic Tech Toronto. You guys must have been incredibly happy when Code for Canada was created and, and that it almost acts as like an intermediary between, say, a government agency and the, an organization like Civic Tech TO. Would having additional Code for Canada, kind of like how you have like 10 different flavors of pizzas, like frozen pizza makers out there. Wouldn't it be great if, if you had access to more than just one code for Canada? I mean, I won't pretend to have knowledge of code for Canada's organizational strategy or like the, the way that they see themselves. Um, but code for Canada and civic tech Toronto are interesting to me is that you can see them as two sides of a similar coin. Code for Canada is like a, is a very effective, um, like it has a, a very clear, clear, very clear goals and programs. It wants to get expertise into government to help the way that their, their uh, operations and, and, and development works. It wants to um, uh, kind of expand their, their capacities and stuff like that. And this is a lot of like, there's been, there's this kind of emerging, um, I don't know if it's necessarily emerging, but there's this kind of civic tech that becomes like gov tech, right? Where you have firms that interface directly with government on like a business to business level. Civic tech Toronto is like a different kind of civic tech. This is more of like a popular kind of, of technology where you're asking lay people, uh, who may or may not be experts in any of the things that they are interested in um, to like participate as equal members in, in a cooperative endeavor. In terms of having more Code for I mean, having some, like having support from Code for Canada whenever, um, whenever Civic Tech is supported by Code for Canada, which is occasionally, and it's always great because they're, you know, we're, we're, we're deeply related historically um, and culturally and socially. Um, that's great. But one of the things that, like, I sometimes wonder whether civic tech, these kind of organizations are, need to kind of disperse outside of major cities or, like, they, they, they can be, like, kind of locally focused, right? Because it's the way that people have a shared experience of their world that allows them to come together and think, well, what can we do about this? Like, it's kind of like, but technology becomes a more general kind of medium for that kind of interaction, it doesn't necessarily keep things focused on specific issues, but allows publics to form around those issues in a way that's like always oriented towards action or ideally oriented towards action. John, I want to come to you real quick here because Curtis mentioned earlier, just a moment ago, I should say, that this, you're in this group, you are a nine to fiver. You are one of those people that works a full day, comes in, 
and and it's not part of your job like say Skydra's would be because there is some some linkage there a little bit with your work as a public servant. You're doing this as a product of passion. And my question for you is, you mentioned earlier about how important it is for you to be part of essentially something bigger, that, that there's an affirmation, that there's a validation that the work that you're doing is going to help a greater cause. In terms of, let's say you were working on something that had a really great potential in being integrated officially with a government jurisdiction. Would that be enough to keep you going every day, every week and working on that thing? Like, what is that threshold? What is that bar? It's like, you know, guys, I've given you enough of my time here. I got, I got to peel off of this thing. Historically, what's happened when, 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 we've gotten, when we've gotten to that stage is that the project has pretty much spontaneously moved away from civic tech. I mean, we had women in color. Women in color is now its own thing. We had the accelerator project. The accelerator project is now largely its own thing. We have um, uh, Law and Design Collab. There are quite a number of other projects that are essentially that have essentially become their own their own independent things. I think that, for example, if 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 we had a unit that was working with the food bank, we would we would it would continue to support it would continue to get support from Civic Tech. But at some point, the people involved would say, "Okay, that's fine. We're going to move off and we're going to work specifically with the food bank and get things done." And uh, because civic tech is not my only uh, is not my only in, uh, avenue of involvement in uh, in in the civic life life of Toronto, and I think that's true of most of us. I'm also involved in food security programs, so it's not it's not an exclusive either or thing. Uh, insofar as um, I don't I don't know if I could put an actual number on it. If, if what you're asking is how many hours, I don't know. I don't know how many hours would be involved. Um, the difficulty that I've experienced historically dealing with these projects is not so much the willingness of civic tech members to continue to be involved in con and continue to contribute. What, what tends to happen in successful projects is that, as I said, they basically become their own thing. They basically become their own unit that is self-sustaining and that is that is largely separated from civic tech. But the difficult part has been to integrate integrate the way we work with the way the government has historically worked. And at that at this point, I think that's a real difficulty because there's a. I don't know that we can make the shift towards the way that government structures government business units have historically worked in the past and so if if for example government wants to i don't like to put it like this but the kind of the kind of thing that we would bring to government is a much more flexible much more loose much more i don't like the word spontaneous but much more flexible much more ad hoc much more one-off We'll get this project done. We'll turn it loose. And if necessary, we'll maintain it. But once we maintain it, it's going to be, it's going to be us maintaining it, not Civic Tech Toronto. There's going to be people who are either going to be working with the government that we brief or people who are, who are us that are going to be under contract with the government that go through the maintenance process. I'm talking way too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I don't think you are. <laughs> You're doing great. But, um, 
but essentially whether whether or not um whether or not we are going to be i think the government's approach is a long-standing integrated approach ours is much more of a gig approach come in do one thing get it done right get it done well get it integrated into the system and then quietly wave goodbye and if we don't quietly wave goodbye then somebody will come along and say okay well you know me and my friend here will come and we'll 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 be working for you now either on a, some kind of contract or on or as members of the civil service and we will be the maintainers of this thing but the actual one way or another the project will get spawned off that's just been the way that civic tech has worked in toronto i should say in other jurisdictions it may be quite different and civic tech uh organizations may and probably do and i i defer to curtis's uh curtis's expertise and experience but in my experience what happens with civic tech in toronto is that it we are an inspiration we are an incubator we are what we do in practice we do as a series of gigs no and i think that's a great way to um to conclude this topic because we got to start thinking about wrapping up the episode but we can't do that until we talk about covid 19 because just as skydra was saying earlier <laughs> and and curtis was saying earlier it has thrown a monkey wrench into everything and speaking on the state of civic technology in toronto you guys have thrived and once again curtis you were so great at pointing out which i did not do that you guys have been doing this every tuesday now for at least five years i don't know how, do you do you know how many of these like meetups you've been doing what was like, the last one 260 260 yeah. 260 we could check the deck for you but we had our yeah. fifth year uh very special hack night um in july yeah so we've had we're yeah. i think we're over we're over 260 we're over 250 for sure <laughs> that kind of consistency on what can be referred to a volunteer-based organization is insane not one of you guys have a single sort of dime you know that's thrown your way you might get you know some pizza money in here and there but nothing that actually stipends now we spend our pizza money on zoom on zoom <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the accounts yeah. right yeah so, so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because one of the great things about Civic Technology, Civic Tech Toronto before the pandemic is that it was very tactile. You know, mm. you, you could go there, you could work with people, you could put up sticky notes, brainstorming sessions, start designing something on a computer, coding with individuals. And it was very, it was a really fun, organic experience with people that you may not have worked before. And it created a tight relationship now you can't really do that you have access to a much greater audience or much bigger audience potentially because you're going to be online and you can bring in people from across the world but you're not going to have that i, I use the term tactility mm -hmm. you won't have that where those rich relationships might not be able to form how have you guys discussed internally what i'm talking about yeah, I'll I'll just start by saying it's a topic of discussion pretty much every week. <laughs> um, because it's it's um you know, like it's it's hard to 
inspire people to join this community that haven't experienced it in person. I mean, I, I am someone who went in person sessions like John and Curtis, and it was a very special experience. Like you would meet people and you would have these discussions and you'd leave so energized and you'd want the discussion to continue. And it's, it's hard to simulate that experience online. Like it is, we're, we're not going to, you know, shy away from, from sort of acknowledging that. Um, and so one thing that we've been really, really trying to do is actually carve out separate time to have accessibility workshops. I mean, that's, that's a, we, we're actually thinking like, you know, how do we encourage people to put their videos on? Because we've noticed that a lot of people, um, frankly, like 10% to 15% of people who tune in weekly, you know, don't put their videos on and we're trying to under- understand why and understand what, what is motivating people to come out to civic tech in these times. Like not many people stick around for breakout sessions, but we do still get a consistent number of people. I'd say on average from about 30 to 45 people come each week, largely probably motivated by, well, sometimes small. Curtis is looking at me, he's like probably smaller. Well, it depends, right? I mean, we, <laughs> we have had numbers though that have exceeded 70 people. I mean, depending on the speaker, it's, it's been a bit of a, a hit and miss, but consistently at least over over 20 people and um and it's and i mean that that's that's the question that i think we're we're constantly asking ourselves is like how do we simulate the experience of civic tech in person online will we ever be able to do that is that even worth it does it look different if so how and you know we care about that deeply we we really care about that deeply and um you know, it's, yeah, Curtis, I'll pass it to you because I know you've been doing a lot on that, on leading, on, on taking a lot of that leadership too. So since the beginning, like I have to give it up to everybody who is organizing for Civic Tech. Like since March, like thankfully, because we had so many public servants, they were able to kind of, you know, um, catch a whiff of it on the wind. And they were like, oh, we got to go next week. We're, we're online and then we're not going to stop. Um, and we made that pivot like on uh right after the march 9th i think or not Mar- it's not march 9th something like yeah it yeah. was yeah. the last in-person hack night um yeah and uh we immediately went to online and there's like a lot of different obviously like things change a lot you keep the structure and you move it over but like things are different because the relations that like the technology allows us to have are different the affordances of uh, of the space are, are, are totally changed. Um, and we struggle with like the way that Zoom is like kind of hierarchical and it doesn't afford like good, like volunteering breakout space. You can't just go where you want to, you have to be managed. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. that's not cool for us. Like we don't really like that. And then, so we, you know, we also don't have any money. So we got to use things that are free. And like, we're looking, we're always looking to like call together to hack something out. And one of the kind of like for the last few weeks, we've been kind of really trying to have a lot of these discussions in more detail to try and think about not just how we can translate, um, how we can translate some of the experiences like one-to-one from in-person, because you can't, right? Like you're never going to replicate those experiences in a virtual space. But if we, 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 what we're trying to do right now is dig down into people's, like what people love about the hack nights, what they want to get the kind of people like the being surprised. They like being able to go from one thing to the other to take their pick. Um, they like to, they like to kind of like get stuck with somebody 
and stay there longer than they expect. Um, and like, yeah. we're trying to kind of bring out some of those things. And then we'll, then we're just going to start asking questions like, well, how can we do that? How can we do that in a virtual space? I mean, one of the things that consistently comes up because we always have to, we're now we're starting to look at it all through like an accessibility lens, which has been really productive because like, if you start looking at things through the lens of accessibility, you're immediately implicating questions of like inclusion, um, access and access. And like, it's a cross cutting thing, right? Like you can, you can use accessibility as a, as a kind of like approach to, to get anywhere. Um, but well, well, that's something that Skydra was saying earlier at, with the Ontario government in terms of designing for the fringes, yeah. right? And that's what that's the approach. It sounds as though that you guys are taking. Now. Yeah, because we absolutely one of the things that comes up is like there's like multi the the, the, the modal, like multi modality is kind of like a, it, it, like creating different ways for people to engage based on what they what they what they like want to do, what they can do, what they're interested in doing, and stuff like that, and like creating the opportunities. I mean, Civitech was already a somewhat confusing space before people would come in and they'd be like, what's going on? And they'd keep coming back. And like the third week, they're like, okay, I think I understand. Because as I was saying earlier, yeah. like, this is not a way that people are used to being with other people. It's. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll just add too, like recently we've, we've brought on a few new organizers and, and we, you know, we had our, we, we meet monthly and anyone can meet, uh, join our, our, our meetings as well. Those are posted on meetup as well. It's always weird um, when somebody comes to an organizer's meeting that they haven't been to a hack night, but it's fine. That's okay. It is fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, really? That, that's interesting. But we can't one of the questions that from doing anything, I, I guess not. It just, I'm, yeah, I apologize. I'm interrupting Skydra. We're going to go on a tangent okay, a little yeah, bit. Do it, do it. I want to explore this first, which is a, an interesting social dynamic that you'd have someone who never attended something, mm -hmm. but wants to be an organizer of it. That's, that's what I think I, I heard. Mean, is that what I heard? Usually people come to organizers meetings without attending a hack night for like kind of because they have questions and they kind of just want to see first like what's happening at that level or they maybe made some kind of like, I don't know, it could be an error or something like that. Um, okay. Uh, or it's, but it's not, it's not from a place of hubris or arrogance. Like I can take over this thing and run this joint better that than you can. That may have happened, but like civic tech, <laughs> the, the, the culture of civic tech kind of starts to diffuse a lot of that because like it's very, things have to, you have to be very consensual about your approach, right? Like if people don't agree with you and they're not willing to do it with you, then you're just left alone and there's no other level. Don't go nowhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You just spin your tires. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go back to Skydra. You were talking about your monthly meetings. No, yeah, I was just going to say that like we've we've had a few new folks join the co-organizing team and one question that was raised was so w what were the before times like? Cuz she the, you know this person had <laughs> this person had noticed that some of us were referring to this like, "Oh yeah, before we used to do that. Oh yeah, before we used to do that." And like it just it really spurred a really good discussion about you know, just how we frame our hack nights moving forward and how the before times are going to become more irrelevant because this is the, this is the times <laughs> and these times are, you know, this way of interacting is here to stay indefinitely. So yeah, no, it just really caused us to sort of think through, we have to think forward now and we have to think a bit differently and it's not really like a, a stopgap solution. This is, this is how we're going to be interacting for, for the next bit. So it was a really interesting question that got a lot of us thinking. It's interesting because like now we're having people that never came to a civic tech in-person hack night, but yeah. they come every week to the virtual ones. 
They do. Some of these people they do, and they're very committed. Could never yeah. come before because you know they 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 have to go back to the to 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 like uh, the nine hundred five, or they you know they 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 weren't able to make it for other reasons, or they live in Ottawa and they you know, um, but they come now. It's yeah. it's been pretty interesting um, to see, and now is also a good time for people who were there before who are interested in kind of like coming and like giving their, you know, trying to make something new, you know, or like kind of bring bring some of the best parts of civic tech like online. So, John, I want to come to you for a moment here because you're an experienced, not only are you an experienced software engineer, but you've been actively involved in a lot of projects that have gone to the next level. Do you think that the pandemic and more specifically working strictly online, especially through Civic Tech Toronto, is going to slow the, the process down, reduce the quality of the work? Or, or, or will it make it better maybe even? I'm not sure because you'll have more people involved. I don't know. Right now, we're in a situation where we're, the, the actual act of coding is at a very minimum if it's, if it's even taking place at all. I haven't been in, in it, personally been in, it, in any sessions where coding, a serious amount of coding has been happening. And that's fair enough. We are still a great resource for discussion. We're still a great resource for planning. We're still a great resource for exploring this stuff. And in a sense, that's better because if we just plunged into coding without actually thinking out what we're, what we need to do, what we, the way, the new way we need to approach this thing, we'd just be spinning a lot of wheels and generating a lot of code that wasn't going to work. And so I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, appropriate. What we're doing now, I think is the most is, is an extremely valuable thing. And in a sense, it's something that, that only civic tech is, is really going to be accomplishing. It's going to be very difficult for a lot of other institutions to do this on the scale that we're doing because they can't turn away from their deliverables and say, all right, we're going to sit down and we're going to think the way, rethink the way we work under these circumstances. That I think is a huge advantage that we can offer the rest of the world. And I'm very happy to be part of it. At the same time, I'm going to acknowledge what has happened is essentially that coding has come to a halt. And the reason it's come to a halt is that bringing people together in virtual space in a, in a, in a situation where, the, where we're dealing with something as fiddly, it's not complicated, but it's extraordinary fiddly as code is we don't, we don't yet have a, we don't yet have a functional way of doing that. In the past, in every organ, in every project that I've been in, it was a matter of somebody sitting down and saying, okay, this is how you do it. Looking and, and you would look over their shoulder and they'd walk you through it and they'd say, this is how it's done. And this is how you upload and this is how you post and this is how you, this is how you push to the master and this is how you, how you, all kinds of other good things. And this is how you, this is then how you deploy to the, to the, um, the staging server and the end of the production server. And this is how you test it. This is what the tests look like. And we all did that. We did that all in person and doing it in, uh, doing it in, in electronic space and e-space is going to be an enormously difficult challenge. And I think it's an enormously difficult challenge for all businesses. And I think it's dealing with, dealing with a fluid team. Because as I said, this is a gig. People come and go all the time. And dealing with onboarding people for this and getting it working is just not something that we yet know exactly how to do in virtual space. And the big thing is we're learning. And once we know how to do it, we're going to be very difficult to stop. 
Yeah, I agree. Civic tech has always been about like experimental ways of working together. Um, and this is no exception. This is an interesting conversation because it's something that's near and dear to me. I've been talking about this for a long time that when it comes to civic tech, open gov, open data, all these sort of 21st century ways of doing things agile and whatnot goes against a lot of, I would almost argue the value system of governance because, or not governance, but of government because government is not allowed to experiment. When, when government tries something and doesn't work, it's spun like a big waste of money of taxpayer dollars. It's a scandal and so on. And, and I would argue to be perfectly honest that a lot of the things that are being seen when it comes to how government is dealing with the pandemic and COVID and masks and flattening the curves and some of the messaging that we've seen is a result of what experimentation looks like, because this is a novel virus. Experimentation is required, mm -hmm. but the public and the media has not been educated or trained on what experimentation looks like and that it's messy and that it isn't perfect when the public expects perfection. So I love what you're saying, John, about we're all learning mm -hmm. in, in this time, not just government, not just the private sector, but civic tech TO as well. And I actually want to ask you guys this question with regards to experimentation, because Skydra, you said earlier, you guys, have monthly you guys have monthly meetings and you discuss a lot of things. Did you guys discuss doing a, a civic tech TO like in a park, like outdoors and you know, socially distanced when those restrictions were loosened later on into the summer? We, we tossed that around, like for our fifth anniversary, there was like a consideration of like, you know, this is a celebratory moment for this community. We need to do something, you know, to mark the occasion and it'll feel strange to do this all online. Like it just, like how, how will that even work? Like, what does that even look like? And I think we, we, we quickly came to the realization that it was, it, it just wasn't worth the risk. I think of, of, of doing something that would perhaps put people on edge or make people uncomfortable. And I mean, we, we haven't really honestly given much thought to sort of going offline, to put it blank. Like that was really the only time in, in, in my memory that we've ever even thought about it. And I'm glad to be honest that that, that is something that we've, we've all agreed upon because I think there's just so much there's so much to be stressing about now. Like people are anxious. And again, it kind of goes back to like civic tech. It's there for you. It's reliable. We are, we are working to try and create a, a container that's safe and that is consistent. And, um, you know, we're still ironing out the kinks. We're still learning, but we are at least sharing our learnings. We are at least allowing people to provide their input as we go along as much, as best as we can and that, and that, I think, is what has led us to sort of make that decision. The community is not really seeking that, and we're listening to the community as best as we can. Well, there's something to be said for making a commitment and sticking to it, and, and, and it's much easier that way sometimes because you're not always exploring other things. You can do something kind of like steam whistle beer. Do one <laughs> thing really, really well. Uh, <laughs> Although someone argue, <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. 
Uh, Curtis, I think you got Yeah, something. I mean, as we're finding now is we try and like really kind of understand the systemic effects of moving to a virtual setting is having on like the culture and practice of civic tech, like experimenting within the hack nights, that's fine. That's what they're there for. Experimenting with the hack nights, no, the reliability, the consistency is key to keeping things like on track and like being able to do it. Um, I, I just wanted to add that it's my experience that the kind of interactions that we're working in terms of in terms of collaborative work on code anyway were the kind that don't really work in a distance in a distanced environment you can't say okay stand six feet away from me and i'll show and i'll explain to you how how this works on your laptop because you can do that just as well over a virtual connection and it avoids any any concern to do what we did to do things the way you we did, you actually have to get fairly up close and personal. You have to look over somebody's shoulder and see what's going on on their screen as you type. That isn't possible under these circumstances, and because it isn't possible, basically we we don't meeting in a park would only underscore the things that we can't do. It would essentially be well now here we are in the park, and yes, I can see you physically instead of just through a virtual system. But on the other hand, uh, I'm also painfully aware that the stuff we used to do together is not gonna work. So I would say, stay, I, I would underscore what Curtis said, but I would also say in terms of staying virtual, it's also a practical matter. There isn't really a lot we can't do virtually that we that we could do in a, in a public park except eat pizza. But I, I mean, learning how we can have fun and productive interactions in this kind of setting like that's a civic tech problem that's a public issue yeah. we all need to figure it out is. how that's gonna work um yeah so oh absolutely and and it makes complete sense mm -hmm. it's almost funny like i asked the question and you guys just came out with the reasons why not i'm like man that was a really stupid question to ask it makes your answers make too much sense i should have known ahead of time we but, didn't even uh, tell you about how much of a logistical nightmare pizza would have been. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation about the state of civic technology in Toronto. And uh, I'd like to, to thank you guys for participating. But before we go, um, I'd like to give you all a, an opportunity to share, to share with the audience how you can be reached or if there's any upcoming events or announcements regarding Civic Tech uh, Toronto, or just anything else in general that you want to get off your um, off your mind. We'll start with Skydra. Mm -hmm. First of all, how can they reach you personally? Oh, me, jeez. Well, um... well, if you want to, <laughs> sorry, I would not. I want to give you the opportunity to give out your Twitter account or something along those lines, if you want. No, that's 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 nice. Um, no, no, no. I I I do try to share opportunities and 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 events in the public sector realm. So you can definitely find me at my first name, Skydra P. Um, but in terms of connecting with the community, I mean, I think definitely follow Civic Tech on Twitter. I think that's something we're trying to also just use as a resource to amplify job postings. We're, you know, trying to experiment with events. We're trying to experiment with what do community members want amplified or elevated. Um, we're online, but we can also really take advantage of the online tools that we have. We have a website, we have a meetup group, we have a LinkedIn channel, we have a Facebook channel, we have an Instagram channel. There's, there's, I think there's lots of room for creativity. So, but predominantly our Twitter and our meetup channels 
is where we um, post most regularly and most consistently. So I just would say, come out if you're civic tech curious or have any questions at all or have never been to a hack night um, or don't even know what a hack night is. This is, this is for you. Okay. Uh, John, we'll go with you next. Just what Skydra said, come out to the civic tech, uh, come out to the civic tech hack nights. I'm very likely to be there. I'm at almost all of them. And uh, if, if I ever say something that is interesting to you, you can introduce yourself <laughs> to me and we can have a conversation. Do you have a social media account you'd like to share at this time? Um, well, my Twitter account is at John Sprague, all one word, J-O-H-N-S-P-R-A-G-G-E. All right. And uh, Curtis. Okay, then I'll start with myself and I'll end with Civit Tech. Uh, so you can, you can find my faculty profile page and email me at my UFC email address, or you can uh, uh, find me on Twitter. I think I'm at CWM underscore underscore. Um, I'd just like to say, like, um, find us on meetup.com. That's uh, one of the key places for us. Doors open around 6.45, 6.50, somewhere around there um, every Tuesday night. You can find the details there um, every Tuesday, except for we'll stop for two weeks in December, but come on out. We're always there, always hacking. Uh, we're just three three people, but like this community goes back five years. It's it's enormous and uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I uh, just want to give a shout out to everybody from the Hack Nights. Uh, Y'all rule. And uh, I believe you guys also have a Slack channel that's public. Am I wrong? In oh, definitely. If you go to, yeah, definitely. I'm not sure. We're going to check. Actually, I think the Heroku uh, might be kind of broken until October, uh, unless we fix it. The what? Sorry. Uh, so if you go to link.civictech.ca/chat, uh, you'll get an invite to our Slack channel. The asset that handles that conversion might be currently broken. So I mean, but. Oh, fair enough. We need to get a hack night to get that going. Yeah, yeah. but but absolutely yes. We do have a Slack channel, so if you come out to a hack night, we can invite you in. We can get you in there. Just just reach out to us, DM us, contact us. We'll 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 get you in there. And I'll be putting all of the links and the Twitter accounts that have been mentioned here in the episode description, so you can always look there for that. And uh, unless there's nothing else. I, I'll do my I want to say oh, thank you to you. No, yeah. just Richard. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> Honestly, this is you are an inspiration. So thank you. Really, thank you. Well, once again, I'm 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 just the guy with the trumpet, uh, you know, blowing how great the the work you're doing and and cheering you guys on. Uh, the consistency you've demonstrated and the reliability; those are words that were used quite a bit to describe Civic Tech Toronto is nothing short of miraculous. Again, 250 plus, not, not missed a single Tuesday in five years, volunteer-led. Oh, well, okay, I'm, make, I'm making <laughs> okay. that claim. It might be wrong, but I'm not going to let you correct oh. me. Because we'll, <laughs> we'll, this will live on as fake news, but it's still good. <laughs> and, uh, but but I, I don't think people truly understand how difficult that is. From an organizer's perspective, from a leadership perspective, what you guys have done. Um, again, Civic Tech Toronto has spawned into essentially Code for Canada uh, in, in many ways that it, it could be looked that way. So don't stop. You guys are the real sort of heroes here. <laughs> and uh, so again, thank you for the kind words for me. 
And I'd like to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.